Lord, we, we thank you that you are here. We thank you for the ways that you've been moving in, in our hearts this morning, in our conversations with each other as we've greeted each other, Lord, in our, our singing to you. And God, we, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, we thank you for, for the Bible and all of its, its mystery and its, its beauty. We thank you for the parts that make us really scratch our head and wonder what's going on. Lord, we thank you for the parts that are, are very clear and direct and that speak a, a very strong and clear word to us right at the right moment. And so, Lord, as we dive into this story today and as we encounter a story that does make us scratch our head, I, I do pray that you would speak your word to each one of us, that we would be open to hearing it, that we would receive whatever you have to say to each one of us today. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus and in the power of his spirit. Amen. Please turn to the book of Judges, chapter 4. And we come to a, a very unique story in the book. In, in Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5, we have two different accounts of the same story. In Judges 4 and 5, we have this story about a woman named Deborah who was leading Israel at that time, and a warrior named Barak who joins together to overcome their Canaanite oppressors, Jabin and Sisera. The first account of this story is in Judges chapter 4, and it's a historical retelling of, of what happened, about how all this story went down between Deborah and, and Barak, and about how they conquered uh, Israel's enemies. And we also get in this story um, some military strategy about how Deborah and Barak went about doing this. And we also have this another story of, of, of a gruesome assassin, this time a woman named Jael, who invites Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, into her tent and then kills him by hammering a tent peg through his skull. It's an interesting story. It's there all in Judges chapter 4. The second account in chapter 5 is a, rep uh, is a poetic retelling of the same story. And it's sung as a duet between Deborah and, and Barak. They sing this song together. So you can imagine, you know, Sonny and Cher or Iron and Wine, you know, singing this song um, about this story of chapter, chapter 4. So chapter 5 is this poetic retelling of the story that happened in chapter 4. It's a really interesting song. We'll take a, a look at a couple sections today, but I encourage you to read through it um, at home this week. But we'll begin in Judges chapter 4, going to read verses 1 through 3. It says this, After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hashereth Hagoim. Because he had 900 chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. So this is the, the third time in the book of Judges where the Israelites have fallen into apathy and disobedience and did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And again, just want to show you this, uh, this pattern that we see happen throughout this book. But this time, the opening verses tell us that things have actually gotten worse 
in Israel. In the first two instances, under Kushan and under Eglon, Judges tells us that Israel was subject to these Canaanite rulers. But things are different now. The Israelites here are not simply subject to Sisera and to Jabin, but now they are being cruelly oppressed under them. Things are worse now. And so this cycle that we have been talking about in the book of Judges, what we see happen as the book carries on is it's actually a spiral downward. That the, 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 the sin, the, the gross sin of the Israelites becomes worse and worse, and the oppression also of the Canaanite nations around them become worse and worse throughout this time. And so after 20 years of oppression at the hands of Jabin and Sisera, the people cry out for help, And once again, God, in his kindness, he extends his patience toward his people, and he sends a deliverer, this time a woman named Deborah. We hear about Deborah in chapter 4, starting at verses 4 and 5. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, in the hill hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. So we're told in these two verses three things about Deborah. She's a prophetess. She was a woman who spoke God's word to his people. We're also told that she's the leader of Israel at this time. People see her as the one who's leading the nation. And third, we're also told that she held court She was a judge actually in the the, the sense that we typically think about, like in a courtroom, you would go to have a dispute settled. Uh, The people of Israel would bring their disputes to to her and she would help settle them. Deborah was a phenomenally gifted and capable leader. As a woman at this time, you can imagine that to be able to arise to this kind of place of authority and to have the people of Israel seeing you as their leader, coming to you in order to have your disputes settled, we can imagine what a capable leader Deborah must have been. Out of curiosity, how many of you have listened at all to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Quite a few of you. It's an interesting podcast. If, if you've listened to it, if you haven't listened to it, I think it might be worth your time. It, it retells the story of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, led by Mark Driscoll, who was and is an incredibly gifted leader. But we, read over, we hear over the course of that story in this podcast that his character didn't match with his gifts, and it led to this toxic culture of leadership in his church. What's been interesting to me about this podcast is that how it holds up a mirror to me and to us and asks us why we are so attracted to narcissistic and bullying kind of leaders. Narcissism and bullying can get us a long way. It can lead to a lot of outward, worldly-looking success. I remember uh, Mark's ministry when I was up in Vancouver. He was just about uh, two hours south of me. And so there was a lot of buzz about him. And I remember envying him. I remember listening to his sermons and kind of thinking how I might be able to do some of the same kinds of things and communicate in the same kinds of ways. I remember listening to him and being attracted to his leadership. And this podcast really challenges us as Christians to consider why who we are following and why we are following them. 
It challenges us as Bible-believing Christians to ask why our measures of success in the church often look more like the measures of the world rather than the measures that the scriptures speak about. It challenges us to consider why we don't seem to really believe the best kind of leadership really does look like foot washing rather than arrogant chest thumping. Why is it that we are attracted to leaders like this? Deborah's leadership, and of course the leadership that Jesus offered, is different than the world's. It's a different kind of leadership. Judges portrays Deborah as God's ideal kind of leader because her ability to lead, the authority that she had, came from her wisdom and her honorable character. People came and sought her for her wisdom. She didn't coerce people and campaign for people to follow her. People came to her because of her reputation, reputation as a godly and wise woman. There's a difference between being the boss and being a leader. Deborah didn't lead from a place of position or power. She didn't coerce people. She didn't force people to follow her. And she wasn't born into some great family. She wasn't a queen. She was able to lead because of her wisdom and her character. She carried authority because of the person that she was, not because of some title that she had. And I think that's an important thing for us to note when we think about leadership among God's people. There are some leaders who lead by being the boss, and they get what they want, and they even accomplish some things by going about their leadership in that way. But in the life of God's people, authority the ability to lead should be derived from a different place. The authority of Christian leaders needs to come from the kind of people who are willing to lead out of self-sacrifice rather than from selfish gain. On Jesus' very last night when he was with his disciples and giving them instructions about what they were to do after he left them physically, there was an argument among the disciples about who was going to be the greatest. So Jesus is telling them that he's about to leave, and they start to argue about who's going to be the boss when Jesus leaves. And Jesus here overhears them, and this is what he says to them. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. In other words, you give me what I want because I'm the leader. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? Is it the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." People in our world derive authority, the ability to lead in all different kinds of ways. Jesus says that Christian leaders derive their authority by their character and their willingness to serve other people like he did. And Deborah is a foreshadowing in the book of Judges to the kind of leadership that Jesus offered and to the kind of leadership that all Christians are called to follow. 
So let's listen now a little bit to this story in Judges chapter 4. It's about the story of Deborah and Barak and how all of this happens. In chapter 4, Deborah, the prophetess, the judge, this leader, she hears from God that God is about to act. It's time for Israel to be freed from these oppressors. God is about to act. And so she calls a man named Barak, and she tells, them, tells him, Barak, it's time for you to gather all of the armies of Israel together and to push back against your oppressors. It's time to act. And you, Barak, are the person that God has made to do it. Deborah and Barak then have a very interesting conversation about how all of that should work itself out. And we're going to look at that conversation a little bit later. But what happens next is that Barak and Deborah, they go throughout all the tribes of Israel and they gather the tribes of Israel together. And some of the tribes, they don't come. They, don't, they ignore the call that Deborah and Barak give to them to come and to, to, to fight against uh, Jabin and Sisera. But there are different other tribes who, who listen. And so Deborah and Barak are able to gather 10,000 men to come and to fight this battle. And throughout this story, we hear this phrase that the Lord gives the victory, that the Lord is going to give this victory to you, Barak. And then after it's over, that the Lord gave Sisera into the hands of Barak. And we talked about this a little bit last week when we looked at the story of the king of Eglon. That in the book of Judges, that God gives power to the Canaanite kings and he gives power to the Canaanite or to the Israelite judges. It was that story in the book of Joshua where the commander of the army of the Lord, that Joshua encounters this uh, commander of the angel armies of the Lord. And this commander says that I'm not on Israel's side. I'm not on the side of the kings of Canaan. I'm on the side of the Lord. And so Israel always has to decide whose side are they on. Are they going to be out for themselves, or they want to submit to, to the Lord's leading. And so the victories in the book of Judges, whether it's through the Canaanites or the Israelites, it's given by God. So in this story, we see that God has been kind, that he has heard the cries of his people Israel to deliver them. And so through the leadership and strategy of Deborah and Barak, God gives them the victory over Sisera and Jabin. And then there's this one other part of this story. Sisera, the commander of the, of the armies of Canaan, he escapes the battlefield and he finds his way into the surrounding area, into this little village. And here's how this part of that story goes, starting at verse 17. Judges 4, 17. Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. And she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and, you, and asks you, is there a man in here, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. 
Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So she went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger until Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. Jael is, is not an Israelite. In fact, her husband is the leader of this clan who's been quite friendly with, with Jabin. But for some reason that we're not told, Jael sees something about Sisera that's evid, evil and wickle, wicked. And she joins together with Israel to conquer their enemy. And he defeats Israel's enemy by crushing the head of Sisera. And that's how the story ends. In this story, God is at work delivering his people from the hands of those that are oppressing him. And as we read through this story, there are some people in this story who join together with God, who act with him in order to bring about the work that he wants to do. These are God's allies in the work that he's doing. Then there are other characters in this story who are God's enemies, people who are actively opposed to God's work. And even people who cheer on God's enemies and the evil that they are doing. And then there's another group of people. There's the allies and there's the enemies. And then there's a group of people in this story that we're going to see that just sit on the sidelines and watch and do nothing at all. So I'm going to introduce you to each of these three different sets of characters. And then I want us to consider what each of these characters teach us about what it means for each one of us to join with the work that God is doing In the world. So, in this story, we have God's enemies versus God's allies. We have Jabin, Sisera, and we're going to also be introduced to Sisera's mother, who I call the cheerleader, cheerleader for evil. Then we have God's allies. They are Deborah and Barak and Jael. And then there's the group of, of people, particularly in the tribe of Reuben and others, who sit on the sidelines and watch. Let's begin with these enemies, Jabin and Sisera. So these were the two that were cruelly oppressing the Israelites. These are obviously enemies of Israel, obviously enemies of what God wants to do at this point. But in addition to Jabin and Sisera, we also are introduced to Sisera's mother in Judges chapter 5. She appears at the very end of the the song that Barak and Deborah sing together. Judges chapter 5, verses 28 through 30. This is the story of Sisera's mother. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice, she cried out. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A girl or two for each man. Colorful garments as plunder for Sisera. Colorful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this as plunder. It's pretty dark. (laughs) Thinking about Sisera's mother waiting for him to come home, wondering why he's so long. And she begins to fantasize that her husband is enjoying his time out killing men and raping women. 
also that she can enjoy a new fancy scarf around her neck. She is a cheerleader for evil in this story. We're also introduced here to God's allies, Deborah. We've already talked about her, God's ideal sort of leader. And we learn in chapter 5 also what motivated Deborah to lead. Judges chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, she tells us why she was motivated to lead in the first place. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took to the winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased, ceased until I, Deborah, arose, arose as a mother in Israel. When they chose new gods, war came to the city gates, and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. In her life, Deborah saw that the people in Israel were struggling. The roads were abandoned. Village life was gone. There was no life and joy anymore. And so it broke Deborah's heart. And she responded by listening to God, by beginning to speak the words to them, and by leading them. And then we learn about Barak. Barak is Deborah's partner in leadership. He leads God's people into battle. He responds to the call of God through Deborah. And with her help, he gathers the armies of the tribes of Israel, and God gives him victory on the battlefield over Jabin and Sisera. And then there's the other of God allies, Jael. Jael is a common woman, a non-Israelite, but we saw in her story the way that she joins with Israel in defeating Sisera. And then there's this other group of people in the story, too. And that's this group of people who stay on the sidelines and do nothing. And their story is told in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 5. The men who were left came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came to me with the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Machir, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after him into the valley. But in the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed behind the Jordan, and Dan, why did you linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. But the people of Zebulun risked their very lives, and so did Naphtali on the heights of the field. Deborah and Barak go to the tribes of Israel and ask them to join in the battle, and some of the tribes join in, and some of them stay home. In Reuben, it says there were much searching of hearts. They sat around the campfire and they talked and they wondered and they searched their hearts. Part of them wanted to go, but they never went. They never joined with the call that God was calling Israel to to respond to at this time. So these are the characters in this story. His enemies, God's allies, and also those who stood on the sidelines. And I want to take a look at each of these characters and ask what they can teach us about what it means for us to join with God's work in the world. There is real evil in our world, friends. There are people who are hurting, 
There are real needs around us. And we are called by the power of the Spirit to join in pushing back our enemy. To use our own talents and gifts and abilities and resources to contribute to the work of the kingdom of God that he is at work building here in the world. And so I want us to remember today, first, that we do have real enemies. Jabin and Sisera were very obvious enemies to Israel. They've been cruelly oppressing Israel for 20 years. And the truth is that the kingdom of God today has real enemies. There are people who traffic in the lives of men and women and children, people who gain from the suffering of others. And there are also people like Sisera's mother who cheer them on. If you spend five minutes reading through the comments section on a political website, you'll know that there are a whole lot of people who are cheerleading for evil in our world. People who are glad to see the evil is having its way. Our evil and evil in our world is real. The principalities and powers of this present darkness, they do influence men and women to do evil things. The gates of hell are real and they are strong. But God's kingdom is even more real and stronger. And Jesus' promise is that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we are called, like Deborah and Barak, to join together with God in the work that he is doing in the world, to join together with him to push back against the forces of evil. In the language of Ephesians, to stand firm with the armor of God, to stand firm side by side with our brothers and sisters in Christ as allies of God in the work that he is doing in the world. And so let's consider a little bit these these allies and also the people on the sidelines. What can they teach us about what it means to join with God's work in the world? I've already talked about Deborah today, an example of God's ideal kind of leader. And I want to talk for a minute to our, our younger people, those who are younger than me, young adults, those of you who are in entourage. There are a lot of you, especially in Entourage, we have some young, amazing leaders that we are watching right before our eyes grow into leaders. And some of them are discerning right now their own calling in their life. You are discerning your calling in your life right now. Some of you are discerning a call into ministry. Is God calling me into ministry in some way? And I just want to encourage you and to challenge you today That whatever leadership place or position that God calls you to, that you will lead like Jesus did. That your model for leadership is the cross. That your model for leadership is washing feet. That your motivation for leadership is sacrificial service to others and not self-interest. Your character Who you are as a person on the inside is more important than any skill or gift that you can offer to the world. Deborah and later Jesus are very clear about this. We need you as the church to be the kind of leader that Jesus was. A leader who serves. A leader who washes feet. A leader who leads out of self-sacrifice and not self-interest. We need you to lead in that way. So guard your heart, follow Jesus' example. Remember that the one who 
is the greatest is the one who is the least in the kingdom of God. Third is JL, another ally. I think it's important for us to remember that God is at work through people who we would least expect. People who are even outside of the church. People who do not yet know who Jesus is. As we think about the work of the kingdom of God, there are men and women who are working for the sake of the poor, working against abortion, working with refugees, working against human trafficking. And some of them don't yet know who Jesus is. And we can celebrate and support the work that they are doing. And part of our calling as Christians may be sometimes to join alongside people who do not yet know Jesus, but are doing work that reflects the kingdom of God, and to point it out to them. To point out to them that the work that they are doing is actually an expression of the heart of the Creator. That their desire for justice, their desire for good things to come about in the world, that that was given to them by God. And that they can actually join together with God in that work. And that their work can have an eternal impact, one that lasts. We see in the life of JL, whatever it was that motivated her to do what she did, that God is often at work outside of God's people. And it's our responsibility as the church to pay attention to that. And, to, and to, to tell them who their motivator really is. What can we learn from those from the tribe of Reuben who stay on the sidelines? Some haunting, that, that song about Reuben just is haunting. That there they sat by their campfires, listening to the whistling flocks of the shepherds, and there was much searching of heart. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. They had their sheep to tend to, and they were unwilling to go when God called. They remind me a little bit of the Pharisee and the Levite who were walking along the road in the story of the Good Samaritan. They saw the problem, they saw the need, but they couldn't be bothered to help. They had other things that they needed to do. Now, for some of you, you hear about the tribe of Reuben. And you think that there's a, there's a part of you that starts to feel guilty. And you think about all of the things that are wrong in the world. And you want to try to move and to fix all of them. Or you feel guilty because you're not doing anything or not doing enough. In the face of so many things that are wrong and that need attention in the world, it can be so overwhelming. So how do we know if we're maybe being like the tribe of Reuben? And simply folding our hands and doing nothing. And how do we know what action to take? How do we know when God is calling? There's a little riddle tucked in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's been really helpful for me in the last three or four years since that that time we went through Ecclesiastes back a few years ago. It's in chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. And the riddle goes goes like this. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with peace than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. When we face all of the problems in the world and when we think about how we might be responding to it, there are three possible responses. And they're all here in this riddle. 
Do you see the three possible responses? The first is to fold our hands and to do nothing. That's the response of the tribe of Reuben, to sit and to do nothing. They search their hearts. They're wondered, man, there's really something, something we could do. I don't know. Maybe we'll just sit here and fold our hands. But verse 6, the second half of this riddle, says that there's two other options. One of them is to fill up all of our hands and to try to do everything. And the other is to fill up one hand. In other words, I'd say to try to do one thing. To respond in the one way that God is calling you to respond. Do something. Do one thing in response to the things that are happening in the world around you. That one thing that God is calling you to and you will experience peace. Better one handful with peace than with two handfuls trying to do everything. Ecclesiastes is saying that in this life we have agency. We have the capacity to act. And at the same time, we need to recognize and live within our limits as a human being. You are only one human being. You cannot save the world. You cannot fix the whole world. Try to do that and you will be frustrated. It will be hevel. Remember, it will be a chasing after the wind. But you can do one thing. You can take one handful. You'll experience ruin if you do nothing. You'll be frustrated if you try to do everything. But what about the one thing? And what if every single one of us grabbed our one thing? The teacher calls us to act. The teacher of Ecclesiastes, he calls us to act, to do something, but also to be humble in our acting, to live within the limits that God has given to us as human beings. The tribe of Reuben failed to do that. When it was clear that there was a handful that they were being called to, they were passive and they didn't respond to the word that God was speaking to them in that moment. And finally, there is Barak, and he is my favorite. His part of this story has fascinated, this, fascinated me this week. I didn't know what to do with him when I began, but I've actually really grown to love his character. I want to go back to this conversation that Deborah and Barak have at the very beginning of the story in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. So Deborah knows that God is about to act, and she calls Barak to him and says, you are, you are to go and to, to fight against the Canaanites. So she says in verse 6, She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Verse 8, Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Verse 9. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. 
So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. There are a couple of different opinions about what's going on here in the story of Deborah and Barak in this conversation that they had. There are some who take Barak's hesitancy in this story, his request for Deborah to help him as a weakness on his part. That he should have heard God's word, responded, believed God, but instead that he didn't have faith to do that and asked for Deborah, a woman, to come along and to help. And that Deborah's words to him that the way he's going about this, that he won't receive the honor or the glory for it, is kind of a bit of a scolding to him. I think there's some truth in that, but I think that it's also overly pessimistic about what's happening in Barak in this story. I think Barak is a picture of every single one of us. He's a human being. He's a man who wants to do God's work. He's willing to do God's work, but he also hesitates. He's a man who's both willing and unwilling. He's a man of faith and also a man who doubts. A man who wants to listen to God's word and obey it, but knows also that he needs help. A man who wants to act, but often waits until there's more information or more security or more help or more whatever. And I think it's true here in this story that Barak does waver here at the beginning. That he's not quite as bold as Deborah is. But quite frankly, that makes me love him more. Because I identify with him so much. And for me, his willingness to act, even when he wasn't sure, I think is incredibly courageous. His willingness also to recognize his need, that he needed Deborah's help, that gives me the permission to do the same thing. I don't have to do everything on my own. I think there's grace here in this story. That God uses Barak in his lack of certainty, even in his wavering. God, in his kindness, gives Barak what he needs in order to do the work that he had called him to do. And so I have three final lessons from Barak about what we can learn about joining with God in the work that he is doing in the world. First, that we should always respond in the calling that God gives to us, that we should respond in faith. In Hebrews chapter, the reason I believe that Barak's a good guy and not a, a weak guy is because he shows up in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have this story, many people call it the hall of faith, where God gives a list of, of men and women from the past who walked and lived in faith. And Barak is listed in that story, not Deborah. Not J.L., Barak, is listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 begins by defining faith as being certain about things we can't see. Faith acts even when we don't see how it is all going to shake out in the end. And that's what Barak does here. He hears God's word and he believes it even though he doesn't see it quite as clearly as Deborah Deborah sees the victory clearly. God has told her clearly that the victory is there. Barak hears that and he believes it, but he doesn't quite see it as clearly as she does. But he acts anyways. He does the thing, even though he doesn't completely know 
what's going to happen in the end. Barak obeys God's word even when he couldn't see the victory. Deborah saw it. Barak didn't, but he still obeyed. He still obeyed. And I think that that is his reflection of faith. Being certain about things that he can't yet fully see. Secondly, Barak is humble and he recognized his limits. So we should ask for help. He knows that he needs help. When he heard from Deborah, Barak, God has given you the victory. If the Canaanite army is going to be defeated by your hands, Barak doesn't get real proud. He doesn't start to, to act puffed up and arrogant. He recognizes that he still needs help. And he recognizes that Deborah is a leader that has the hearts and the trusts of the people. And so he asks her for her help. Barak says, I'm willing to do this thing, but Deborah, I need you. I need the gifts and leadership and skills that you bring to help me do this thing that God has called me to do. And I think that this is a good thing. To ask for help, to recognize our limits is sometimes the wisest and most courageous thing that we can do. And Barak does it. And because he did that, he and Deborah were able to gather 10,000 men to go and to fight this battle. And third, Barak doesn't care who receives the glory. Deborah says to him, Barak, because you're doing things this way, you're not going to receive the honor for this victory. And Barak pays no mind whatsoever. No attention at all to Deborah's words here. He just goes about and does the thing that God has called him to do. He doesn't care whether or not he gets the glory for the victory. And we hear in the song that Barak joins with Deborah to sing in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, that he joins in his own heart in giving praise to God. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook and the heavens poured and the clouds poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. He sees that the victory always belonged to the Lord. So I want to finish today by um, just asking you to take some time of silence. And I'm going to ask you some questions for prayer today. Some questions for prayer for you to consider as you think about what God may be calling you to do, what kind of responsibility he may be calling you to take, and um, what we can learn from uh, the characters in this story about how to respond to the call of God. So I'm just going to ask you some questions and consider you in silence to uh, ask you to consider in silence. Um, what God may be calling you to. First question I want to ask is this. Is there any place in your life where you are acting as an enemy of God or as a cheerleader for the enemy? And if so, I just invite you to confess that to him. Maybe you know you're not like the worst of God's enemies, but maybe you get a little bit excited when God's enemies win. Is there any place where you are acting as an enemy of God or as a cheerleader for the enemy? Second question for your reflection is this. When have you been like the tribe of Reuben and have been passive when you know that God is calling you? I invite you to confess that to God this morning and to ask for his help. Ask for help from his spirit. 
to enable you to act. And here's the last question for your meditation today. What is the one handful that you need to pick up? What is the one thing that God is calling you to? Today, are you willing to act in faith? Even if you don't know how all of that's going to end? Are you willing to act in faith, not knowing if you'll be a success? Are you willing to to pick it up and to walk in it? And as you think about that thing, what help do you need? What other people are there who you need to come alongside you and to work and to join together with you in this task? You weren't made to do this by yourself. So who do you need around you? Who has the same thing in their hand, the same handful? What do you need? What gifts and resources do you need? And as you think about that one thing, whatever that task is, whatever that work is to be done, are you willing to empty yourself of any credit for it? Are you willing to empty yourself of any glory for it? Are you willing to offer that thing fully up to God to allow him to receive glory and honor and praise for whatever it is that you're being called to do? Lord, I thank you for making us in the way that you have. Thank you for making us with gifts and abilities, agency, with capacity to act in the world, capacity to make a difference, capacity to help other people. Lord, I thank you that you've also given us limits, boundaries of what we're able to do. Thank you that you are Lord and that we are not, that you are King and that we are not, that we can live within the limits of being only human, but in those limits that you have good things for us to do, good eternal things for us to do. And so, Lord, I I do pray that you would help each one of us to take up our, our one handful and to do with it whatever you would have us do. Amen.